0: Hey, what's up, everyone? Welcome back to the Barbell Medicine YouTube channel. I'm Dr. Jordan Feigenbaum. We're going to talk about. Not too shabby. Hey, everyone, welcome back to the Barbell Medicine YouTube channel. I'm Dr. Feigenbaum. Today, we're going to do part two of the testosterone series. If you haven't checked out part one, I'll link that in the show notes below and you can go over and check that out. As always, thanks for joining us. Hit like if you dug the video. And if you want to stay up to date on all the latest and greatest information, make sure you subscribe. Thanks. All right. Welcome back to the barbell medicine podcast. I'm here with Dr. Baraki. We're going to talk now about how we treat low Testosterone. All right. So we've got two low total testosterone tests. Everything else is negative on our workup. Okay. So now we've kind of arrived at this point where, hey, they're hypogonadal. They have low testosterone, not due to any other cause that we could potentially treat without some sort of hormonal therapy or medication. What now?
1: So, uh, I think, we can, we'll definitely talk about the pharmacologic treatments. I think we should just reemphasize where we are after we have, after we have a negative, or after we have a uh, confirmed low testosterone level on the first and the second test. Um, assuming that we have those two negative tests and the FSH and LH levels on the second one are uh, low, which is going to be the more common situation that people run into, or inappropriately normal is the other thing that can happen. You would expect them to be higher, but they're, but, they're, but they're actually normal or low. Um, this is the more common situation that we run into, particularly with our demographic of, uh, you know, young to middle-aged, some, sometimes older males, either in a clinical setting or in, like, the coaching type setting. Um, you know, there are a number of reasons why they can develop hypogonadism, again, which we said outside of just it happens, um, some of which aren't even strictly, like, medical diagnoses like, you know, sleep apnea. So th- other things you need to think about are that, uh, you know, increased levels of body fat, obesity themselves can end up, uh, you know, due to the uh, activity of things like aromatase and some other cardiometabolic or some other other endocrine and metabolic changes can result in them having low testosterone levels. Uh, Use of excessive amounts of alcohol, opioid pain medications um, also can directly interfere with this this system and that can result in some low testosterone levels. Um, And then uh, again, we've, hopefully we've hammered home enough the importance of just sleep, issues uh, being being playing a role here, so impaired sleep quality for almost any number of reasons. And so those are things that, you know, when it comes time that, yes, you have low testosterone, yes, I think that this is probably what's explaining the symptoms that you're having, that's where we have this kind of decision point where we need to decide, are we going to start out by trying to treat this without medications, uh, i.e. non-pharmacologically, or are we going to try to treat it with medications like testosterone replacement therapy? And I've had a number of situations with patients where after we go through the whole discussion of what it entails, what's involved, they end up uh, opting for the non-pharmacologic therapy because I tell them things like, hey, if we can get your body fat down, if we can improve your sleep, uh, as very, if we can get you maybe if, if it's somebody who drinks a bunch of alcohol, drinking less alcohol. Uh, getting them off of opioid pain medications, uh, getting them on a CPAP machine if they need it. Uh, those are situations very commonly where we'll see someone's testosterone levels perk right back up into the normal range. They never needed any medicines. They spared themselves the cost, the, uh, the, the uh, potential for side effects, the time associated with TRT, monitoring, a lifetime of labs, PSAs, digital rectal exams, like all that kind of stuff that they're gonna end up needing uh, just because, hey, we got them, you know, we got them into a better kind of metabolic state. And so, you know, that's something that everybody knows they should do anyway, reducing their waist circumference, reducing as much of their body fat, or not as much, but reducing excessive amounts of body fat, improving sleep quality. So that's why, you know, we harp on that a lot in almost every topic we've talked about on this podcast, as well as at our seminar, we hammer away at these things to make sure people get how important they are for all these other things Um, and so you know it's kind of funny because people always talk about doctors wanting to just like mask symptoms with medications and not treat underlying causes and not manage these kind of lifestyle issues when that's really the vast majority of what we harp on with patients, and in fact a lot of the patients that come to us, they want to mask the symptoms with, with TRT, which is kind of funny. When we could treat it alternatively. So that's a common situation we run into where we can actually, with you know, a bunch of detailed discussion and education, get patients to actually improve themselves with some lifestyle changes before we get to the TRT phase.
0: Right. So a trial of lifestyle medicine prior to TRT is a reasonable Alternative for folks, uh, particularly if they have excess central adiposity, which just is a large, you know Amount of body fat around the waist Um, if their sleep habits are poor if their dietary habits are poor secondary usually to like alcoholism for instance Or other toxic ingestion uh, recreational drugs and stuff Um, Yeah, so so I think that's that's reasonable. So so let's say our person again is two low testosterone tests uh, their PSA is less than three. They are negative for sleep apnea. They don't have polycythemia. They don't have hypothyroid. They don't have you know some uh, evidence of a tumor. They're HIV negative. Mm-hmm. Uh, all these sort of things uh, <laughs> ticking off all the boxes. Yeah, exactly. yeah, yeah, yeah. They they're not. Uh, they don't have a lot of central adiposity. So you know they're not you know crazy crazy obese. Um, now we're at this sort of enroads where you can reasonably initiate. TRT with so you're actually giving somebody testosterone or alternatively, there's some recommendation to potentially start a medication like clomiphene citrate, also known as uh, clomid, um, that tends to increase uh, GNRH, uh, uh, gonadotropin-releasing hormone, effectively can get your FSH and LH to perk up and ultimately get your your testosterone production back online uh, from the testes. Some people prefer that versus injectable testosterone preparations or, uh, or, uh, uh, dir- uh you know, topical testosterone preparations. So when people are like, yeah, well, my doctor wants to put me on Clomid. What a, what an idiot. It's like, well, no, there's, there's some, you know, reasonable evidence that that could work and, uh, potentially, uh, Produce, basically it's making you produce testosterone a little more quote-unquote naturally uh, so there's less peaks and, and sort of valleys and, and monitoring that needs to occur with that but let's say we're no longer doing Clomid that that didn't work so there's a bevy of different preparations or types of medications that one can use uh, what do you see most commonly in your practice uh,
1: the most common ones that I see are testosterone cypionate. Um, typically started on most patients around 100 milligrams a week, which among, like, lifting folks is probably considered to be, like, a laughable dose. Um, but that's really where the most common starting point is um, for, for a lot of people is, cipion, is testosterone, either cipionate or anathate, Um usually around 100 milligrams a week, sometimes higher for, like, big giant dudes or something like that. might like, go... 150, sometimes 200, sometimes people will even prescribe, uh, you know, something like 200 milligrams or something like that every two weeks, which most people are not as big of fans of due to the half-life of, kind of the pharmacokinetics and pharmacodynamics of it. In terms of, you know, you end up being effectively hypogonadal again before your next dose, and so sometimes they have unpleasant fluctuations and symptoms. So you need to adjust the dosing frequency. But those are the typical injectables that we see. And so they're testosterone esters, they're suspended in oil, um, and basically alongside that you end up committing yourself to needing to get you know syringes, needles, uh, and then injecting yourself at X interval with X dose that is to be determined you know, between you and your physician based on your levels um, and monitoring over time. So that's the typical injectable formulations that, that, that I see the most often.
0: Yeah, and, and just in general, without going too far in the weeds here on the pharmacodynamics and pharmacokinetics, it's usually a two-week half-life, uh, and and so uh, or sorry, set was it seven? I think it's half- less
1: than yes, yeah, it's, it's closer to a week.
0: Yeah, and, and basically, you can get away with weekly injections, although the uh, studies on this these sorts of preparations show that. You get significant variation in hormonal levels. Um, so, for instance, at the day after an injection or two days after injection, some people will be uh, uh, have super physiolo- physiological doses of testosterone uh, floating around, and they've had this euphoria. They're like, "I feel great." It's like, "Yeah, well, yeah, your testosterone right now. <laughs> yeah, your testosterone levels two thousand, and that actually changes depending on what limb you actually measure the uh, the uh, the take the take the lab test in from relative monitoring. to
1: where you injected.
0: Yeah. So let's say you injected your right deltoid, right? And so you get a a blood draw from your right arm two days later. Well, you may in fact be off the charts. They can't (laughs) even measure your testosterone level because, um, that testosterone that is suspended in oil sort of slowly releases from the muscle into the bloodstream. Uh, and yeah, it's got some localized sort of, uh, it's increased locally because that's kind of where it's seeping out from, uh, so to speak. So in any event, yeah, I typically see patients that are either on once-a-week injections or twice-a-week injections. They'll do, like, yeah. a Monday-Thursday kind of thing or Tuesday-Friday, Tuesday, mm-hmm. Tuesday Friday. and that's the injectable. And I think I just want to speak for a minute on this before we just move past it because each case is going to be different, and certainly their clinicians going to uh, uh, rue the day here as far as deciding. But there's a thought that the injectables always, 100% of the time, outperform the transdermal preparations or the subcutaneous uh, preparations. I think Testapel, I actually don't know if that's still available in the United States. I know the some pellets? other countries. The pellets? Yeah.
1: Yes, yeah. they are still. I have a patient who's on them, actually, yeah.
0: Yeah, it's funny. I actually did a, like, I used to do these calls with Gold's Gym, like, uh, all their, their training directors, right? They would, like, just come on this huge conference call and ask me questions about training. It's kind of cool uh but uh, <laughs> this one lady she was like yeah my husband actually gave himself a heart attack uh when he was injecting testosterone like he went to the hospital had to stay in the ICU for a couple of days he had so much anxiety about injecting right and she's like but he's hypogonadal. you know he, she didn't say that he's hypogonadal he just said that he had low testosterone and he didn't like the uh the transdermal preparation so I was like I think you could just do a pellet you know that goes under the skin and so that if people have anxiety about injections, then there are other options. So the pellet, the transdermal stuff, and to my knowledge, the transdermal stuff actually has the best sort of, you know, steady levels because you're applying it daily, um, and so you have less of a sort of, oh look, I'm super physiological now, I'm <laughs> below normal, which, which right. is right. You- so that's.
1: That's the that's the, the big difference with the injectables is you're essentially leaving a little like depot of the medication in wherever you inject, and it slowly gets released into your circulation over the you know subsequent time period until your next injection, and so there's this theoretical benefit of maintaining more of that diurnal variation that you would have kind of physiologically if you were able to apply you know say you wake up every morning and you put your you know your androgel on or whatever. Um, then there's this theoretical benefit of maintaining that kind of morning peak and, and, and kind of more evening trough whether there's like real clinical kind of differences and outcomes based on that we don't really we don't really know it's more of like a theoretical benefit but that's just something that's that's described as well as you know the benefits as you mentioned for people who are not into injecting themselves with needles there are lots of people like that out there or um, people who don't want to undergo the little minor minor surgical procedure involved in implanting you know eight pellets under your skin or something like that so
0: which I actually think would look kind of cool. You're like, "Hey, check this out," and you like flex or something, and your forearm's like, <laughs> uh, you know, or if they put the pellet like, you know, right under the spine of your scapula. I you're like, he's... I can't really low bar. So <laughs> like...
1: you can request where they put
0: it. <laughs> I would want it in my hand, you know, just to like show people. No, um... just give them a little. <laughs> right, right, right. So, uh, yeah, I think the main takeaway from this is that injection, the injectables are not always superior to other preparations, and it's going to be uh, assessed on a case-by-case basis. Um, probably the, where that came from, if I had to guess, is that on the black market, you know, Vinny down at the gym or at the supplement store, you know, in addition to your whey protein, probably can't sell you androgel, but probably could sell you some bath bathtub testosterone Uh that they... <laughs> So uh, in any event, all right, so we're going to take a little break. When we come back, we're going to talk about monitoring uh, testosterone levels over time. Hey everyone, thanks for listening to the Barbell Medicine Podcast. Hopefully you guys are enjoying it. I wanted to take a second and talk about GainsRx. GainsRx is now shipping Amazon Prime if you get it on their website. And through our website, you can get a subscription where GainsRx is delivered to your door every month for a $5 discount per tub. The idea is that you take GainsRx pre and post-workout. It's got all the right ingredients to maximize your performance, improve recovery, and ultimately give you the biggest bang for your buck when it comes to exercise supplementation. A lot of people ask me, hey, Jordan, why did you even make this supplement in the first place? Well, at the time, I was recommending people take all these different supplements. They'd have to get multiple bottles, dose the things properly, and people just weren't doing it. It was too hard to do. So I put it all in one supplement. You take one scoop before, one scoop after, and you're done. Uh, We typically see improvements in performance and recovery metrics when we track them. So the idea was if you were going to supplement anyway and you wanted to take stuff that was actually going to work, let's put it all in one supplement. We'll put it out on the market and see how it does so there's been a ton of people who have told me that they've gotten great results from it looks like things are going well so you can get gains rx at the barbellmedicine.com store or you can get it on amazon we really appreciate you guys and thanks for listening make sure that you give us some feedback on our podcast and we'll catch you guys later all right we're back with the barbell medicine podcast we're going to talk about testosterone monitoring so we've got a patient who's got two low testosterone uh, tests. The rest of their workup has been negative. We decided to start them on testosterone replacement therapy with uh, an injectable, we'll say. All right, Dr. Baraki, what kind of monitoring would you subject them to?
1: Okay, so yeah, they're gonna need more frequent follow-up in the short term after you initiate the therapy just to see how they're doing in terms of symptoms, but also to check levels to see where their levels are at in terms of a making sure that they're you know not continuing to have symptoms and still in the very low range, but also not getting cranked up into the supra physiologic range. So you're not cranking them up to you know 2,500 on their on their serum uh, total testosterone levels. So you know within the first month you'll need to get uh, get a recheck of the testosterone levels. There's a few different schools of thought in terms of how you might do that. Um, whether you would check it at the midway point between injections versus like what we would call a trough concentration right before a dose. because again, if you can imagine the kinetics of this, you get you know your injection, your levels skyrocket real high, and then they come down over the subsequent week. Um, to their lowest point or the nadir would be the uh, fancy word for that that you would check a level right at that point right before they are to administer their next injection and so let's say that you um, put them on a given dose and you check their trough level right before their next injection and their trough level is like 950 well that would suggest that you're dosing them very aggressively with testosterone and it might be prudent to lower the dose a little bit if that's where their lowest point is prior to their next dose um right
0: so, sorry. No, so I I do like the trough level as well, just just because it tells me more of uh, of what to do from a management perspective. So if I checked somebody the day after their injection or 2 days after their injection and they're at the top end of normal, I don't really know what to do with that because I'm like, you know, that makes me feel good and warm and tingly on the inside, but if they're actually if they're actually hypogonadal prior to their next injection, I I would feel less good about that uh, because the idea is that with the replacement therapy, that the entire time between medication administration, you're within the normal range. So directly after the injection, you're probably at the upper end of normal, and then before the next injection, you're still in the you know normal range at some point. So that's why I like the trough level myself. Um, I've seen people do all sorts of weird things like, yeah. oh yeah, I got at the you know, the same day I did my injection. I'm like, yeah. what the hell do you do with that?
1: Cool, you're I really don't... high. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah.
0: Uh, and what uh-huh. else do you check with the, because the t- you a total testosterone. Yep. And what else do you
1: check? So you're also gonna need to watch the patient's uh, complete blood counts. So a CBC measurement, as it's more commonly known, mainly to watch the hemoglobin. So that's the, the concentration of hemoglobin uh, in your red blood cells. And so that's something that tends to rise on testosterone therapy, particularly when you're into the supraphysiologic range where you get into the real high levels. And so that's something that we mentioned is that it can cause a number of potentially devastating complications that are best avoided. Whether that means you end up needing to go and donate blood, uh, phlebotomy, something like that. Um, A lot of times once you're in that range, you'll start taking a baby aspirin to kind of potentially reduce the risk of some of those complications from happening. But really, if they get into that high of a range, you also need to see if you can correlate it. potentially. you might be dosing them too aggressively. you might need to adjust the dose or the dosing frequency um, so that you don't you know keep them at a hemoglobin of eighteen point five you know for for months on end or something like that because there's going to be incremental risk over time with that.
0: Right, so if you have somebody with a really high hem- hemoglobin or hematocrit, you tell them to go donate blood. I think the interval now that they like the Red Cross or whoever what you know is letting you do that is like every fifty two days you could actually. To donate blood. So if you need more frequent donations than that, uh, one check the dose. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, to, Go back and look to, at what you're doing. Right. Two. Two. Is there something else we're missing? For instance, sleep apnea that is <laughs> exactly yeah you know, cre- came up out of nowhere, or or you know, do you have carbon monoxide poisoning? Like you know. <laughs> handful of different things, um, and and then you may need a therapeutic phlebotomy, which is uh, you know the kind of the other thing we do. You go in and basically they pull some blood off you. Um, so yeah, uh, do you routinely check estradiol levels? So, so yeah, so that's levels?
1: a that's a good that's a good question. So so estradiol is a form of estrogen. It's something that um, circulates in primarily in women but again also in men um and estrogen is not the uh the demon that it is made out to be in male physiology it actually has some important roles in um actually in maintaining satellite cell function there's some cardiovascular benefits there's a lot of stuff that um estrogen is actually very important for in male physio- physiology however it needs to be maintained uh, in the you know appropriate physiologic range for a male you don't want to end up with sky high estrogen levels as a male and so you know <laughs> in the setting, uh, so so in in typical routine outpatient clinical practice, you don't see tons of people measuring these levels. Um, when there are certain types of suggestive symptoms um, of estrogen excess. Excuse me. Of estrogen excess, common ones would be things like gynecomastia. People might complain of like sore, uh, itching, itching nipples, uh, bloating, certain mood or libido issues that they were not necessarily expecting when they got on TRT. Those can all signify some sort of um, issue with estrogen. Particularly, it would be too elevated because you're on a bunch of testosterone and it's going through the aromatase enzyme and getting turned into um, these these uh, kind of byproducts, including estradiol, and so. From a, there's not, you know, very clear clinical guidelines on this, for example. Um, but um, you know, typically from the bro science world, a lot of people seem to want to maintain their estrogen levels between 20 and 30. That's measured in picograms per milliliter. For men. Um, Of course, you know, a lot of times people will feel just fine, upwards of 40. If you're getting really significantly higher than that, then you probably want to do something about that. Again, whether that be that, hey, you have tons of aromatase because you have tons of body fat and you need to reduce that, whether that means that your testosterone dose is too elevated, is too high, and you have tons of testosterone that's flooding this pathway, going through aromatase, getting turned into estradiol, Um, or it's just how you are, and you tend to convert a bunch of it. And so those are situations where patients might be particularly, you know, this is more often kind of in the, in, in, you know, um, among these like TRT clinics, not, not typically prescribed by, you know, regular endocrinologists, but you'll see um, so-called estrogen blockers, typically things like anastrozole or letrozole, things like that, that are aromatase inhibitors and basically prevent that conversion from happening.
0: Yeah, that's what I see, especially a lot coming from the testosterone replacement therapy clinics or men's clinics. It's like, uh, you know, guys on testosterone zypunate, some anastrozole and like beta HCG. Like that's just like the standard here. It's like Oprah, you know, like you get some anastrozole and you get some anastrozole and you get some HCG. And it's like, well, that's probably so they don't have to come in more frequently than (laughs) than necessary. Uh, It may not be clinically prudent. But yeah, if I have a patient who's on anastrozole. Uh, previously, then I will check their, their estradiol levels so that they feel like they've ruled themselves into getting that monitored to make sure it's within normal range. Yeah, you don't want to over-suppress
1: uh, it either and send them down low to estrogen levels of like five or something because there's consequences to that as well. So,
0: and, and I think you touched on a point that I, I want to make, again, resoundingly clear. Um, it is dangerous to read stuff on the internet without clinical correlation. So unfortunately... Not a lot of people are going to their physician to talk to them about this, these sort of issues, uh, TRT, um, sexual function as it relates to TRT, uh, human performance as it relates to testosterone levels, stuff like that. However, on the internet, there are no there's no restrictor plate. You can search for whatever you want and somebody on Reddit or somebody on a, a steroid forum or whatever or a strength training forum is going to have an answer for you and it's not always going to be what you want to hear, but it can affect your mind negatively. So people will say, "Yeah, I just started a cycle or whatever and, you know, now I have erectile dysfunction." And somebody's like, "Oh, your estrogen levels are probably still, you know, too high." And instead of getting, you know, a lab workup or going to see a physician about it, they just say, oh, yeah, 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 my estrogen's high. And then they go take something that they got on the Internet and crash their estrogen levels and feel worse. And, and it's like, look, you're 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 playing with fire here. And it helps to have somebody who knows what they're doing monitor this. And that's not Vinny down at the <laughs> gym. I, I know it, it, we can laugh about it, but this is happening a lot. And so I think... It would be nice to have a good therapeutic alliance with your physician who you can talk to. Again, I'm not trying to shill anything here. Uh, I'm still waiting on my big pharma check to come in, uh, but but you know we, we are licensed in many different states, and and that may be something to consult us uh, uh, consult with us about through SteadyMD or or another appropriate channel, because because again we're we're keyed up on this stuff, and and we want to make sure that people are getting good care and not just SIBOing themselves on the internet. So. Uh, we're gonna take a quick break. When we come back, we're gonna talk about the nocebo effect for real as it pertains to hormone replacement therapy and then human performance and testosterone. All right, welcome back to the Barbell Medicine Podcast. I'm here with Dr. Baraki. We're gonna talk about the nocebo effect as it pertains to testosterone and hormone replacement and also human performance. All right, Austin, we've alluded to it this whole time. I see you're you're you know flexing your chest, you're taking a deep breath, you're ready to go. What are your thoughts on the nocebo effect as it pertains to this issue so
1: this is something that uh, i think people are probably starting to get used to hearing me rant and rave about all the time whether in person or sometimes or at our seminars as well is that i think the role of kind of the mind expectations and 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 understanding um in terms of a lot of physiologic stuff so when it pertains to performance uh perception of pain um you know so-called recovery kind of stuff it has a huge role in this and so you know it's nice it's it's very easy and convenient for us to describe the body and human physiology as just this like machine that like you apply a stressor to it, you recover in a standardized way, and you get a standardized result. We can predict exactly what that result is going to be every time, and we can carry that process out forever. And like a year from now, I can predict exactly where you're going to be because you're a machine that receives a stress, recovers, and adapts to it. Unfortunately, not how it works. Uh, a lot more complicated um, than that. And there are a number of things, uh, reasons why you know, your coach cannot pred- like write out you know, you know, like a like a four-year plan for you, like a, like a four-year periodized plan for you, and predict where you're going to be four years from now. Um, there's obviously unpredictable things, things like setbacks that, that can happen. To anybody, um, a lot of the differences in outcomes. So, for example, you know we we have this novice program that we put a lot of people on. We run them through it, and people end up at the end in wildly different places. Some people finish their LP squatting, you know, 160 pounds. Some people some people finish squatting at 475 pounds, and we typically will just kind of brush aside the differences in outcomes and just say, yeah, it's genetics, and it's actually. You know, that's obviously a component of it, but there are so many other factors that go into how this stress recovery and adaptation cycle take place, part of which is, in fact, mediated by your brain, your mind, your expectations. in terms of how things go. So, you know, we see this all the time with people who have a setback in the gym and they freak out and they panic and it sets them back for eight weeks versus the other guy who has a similar setback and he's like, I'll be fine, you know, tomorrow or two days from now. And they come back sooner, they train more productively and they do better in the long term. And so these expectations, uh, they can be manipulated. That can be, that, and that means that they can be manipulated for good or for bad. And so it's important to, for trainees to be aware of this so that they can you know, see what's happening. uh, But also for coaches to be aware of this so that you can take advantage of it because you can get better outcomes from people this way. So, you know, we've talked about before when we have an injury, for example, in our injury podcast, first step was always reassurance, telling them, you know, it's going to be okay. And then kind of working them through the rehab process versus panicking and potentially worsening their outcomes. I think a similar thing kind of applies in this situation, because let's say that you have somebody who goes and ends up getting their testosterone checked and it's 300 and they're 24 years old and you expect them to have a testosterone level of 700 you have two choices you can freak out and panic and say this is why you're not making any gains right and blame every setback or every uh, uh you know everything that doesn't go according to plan on that um, or you can say this is where you are if the pa- if the person doesn't really have any symptoms then you know they probably shouldn't have had it checked in the first place and you can work with them in terms of managing other things to make this process go smoothly. And I think that we do, it, there's there's a lot of potential for harm for people who are in a position of authority to um, say these sorts of things that can manipulate a trainee's expectations to the point where, you know, they might pay more attention to their fatigue. They might pay more attention to their soreness than they otherwise would once they have something to pin it on, like, oh, my testosterone level is not where it should be.
0: Right. Yeah. And And I would... Uh, say, so I would not necessarily expect a 24-year-old's testosterone to be 700. That was just a number that Austin threw out. So look, if you're 24 and your testosterone level is 300, that's fine. Bryce Lewis actually released his testosterone level. <laughs> yeah, so it's going to be okay. Um, also, uh, yeah, also, uh, uh, this proportion keeps changing in my mind because I keep getting further and further removed from actually reading the study. But uh, and, and this study was actually... Uh, Cited within a position paper on you know what to do about females which kind of blends in nicely with our our next topic but Basically, they took the testosterone level total testosterone levels of men competing at the 2012 London Olympic Games, right and uh, Close to or over half of them were On the low end of normal at the Olympic level, right? Uh, and so when going down this sort of like you know algorithm for why is my client missing sets or reps on a particular training program, uh, I don't even include testosterone within that sort of paradigm, right? So for instance, I would go down and say, okay, is their form good? Yes, move on. All right. If their form is good, uh, okay, is there an acute sort of stressor that that's going on, uh, either in their personal life, uh, uh, in their nutritional situation, in their sleep game? uh, in their overall mood, for instance, uh, no, no to any of those. Okay. Well then, uh, 10 times out of 10, it's going to be programming related. Yeah. And, and I say that not to say that, uh, you know, hypogonadism or low testosterone is never, ever the cause. It's just so infrequently the cause that I don't even put it in my assessment. It just because it's so infrequent that Correct. C- correct. When you hear hoofbeats, think horses. I've always wanted to say that and be right. So, (laughs) so, So I think this is a good time now to talk about the big elephant in the room, which is performance, testosterone performance. And so we kind of segued in here nicely. If you have higher testosterone levels within the normal range, you on average will not perform better than somebody with a testosterone level in the low end of normal, all other things being equal. That being said, uh, that applies more to males than it does to females. Okay? So if you are a female and you have a higher testosterone level than normal, uh, occasionally this garners a misdiagnosis of PCOS, um, and occasionally this di- uh, garners some unscrupulous attention from either folks on the internet on social media or other media outlets these women are oh, they're clearly on steroids or they're clearly You know different Uh, You tend to perform much better. And so I I introduced this in our last Q&A which will have been released um, You know about a week before this goes live the sort of athletic continuum and I think I need to be very clear what I mean by athlete here Um, because obviously you can be a good performer in certain sports like, you know, marathon running or endurance sports and and this doesn't necessarily jive with that, but on the one end of the athletic spectrum, you have the super freak athlete. This is the person who carries a lot of muscle mass naturally without training. They have a high VO2 max without training. They have narrow hips, broad shoulders, big hands. Um, They respond very robustly to training. They tend to have a higher than average vertical jump. Um, all these sort of things. On average, if that's a female, their testosterone level will be higher than normal. All right. They may even have some androgen sensitivity variants compared with their the you know middle of the road type of person who's ma- matched to their age and size and everything else like that. On the other end of the spectrum, which I think in the seminar I called the nerd end, but or or, or accountant, I forget which I used. All right. This person, on average, carries more body fat and less muscle has wider hips, narrower shoulders, uh, tends to respond worse to training, tends, and uh, what I mean by respond, I mean gain less strength, have less muscle mass. Um, they tend to require, uh, you know, end their novice LP a little earlier, for instance, than those on the other end. They have a lower than average vertical jump. They have lower VO2 max uh, without training. That person, if it's a female, will tend to have lower testosterone levels than the, the person in the middle of the road. Um, for men, the testosterone level is not necessarily correlated to where they air, okay? But the reason for that this is so uh, much more pronounced in females is because within uh, a female, you can see this sort of, you know, 10 times variance in levels, right? So at the low end, the, the accountant or nerd end, you know, this person might have 25 nanograms per deciliter, 50 nanograms per deciliter floating around their bloodstream, right? And at the upper end, you may have 200, 250, 300, which is effectively super physiological. It's off the charts, but that's just their normal range. And so sometimes they'll present to their doctor saying, hey, I, you know, I'm missing my period, or I've got this hair growth, like what's going on, and get diagnosed with PCOS. Even though that's not how you diagnose PCOS, for instance, but that's, that's common. Um, also, things that are more common in females who have this higher level of testosterone uh, include um, certain enzymatic mutations that cause more sex steroids, like testosterone, to be produced. And that is like a thousandfold different in elite athletes. Um, now, these numbers are not accurate because I forget the exact numbers off the top of my head. Um, but I believe for instance uh one of the looks like uh it's 21 hydroxylase deficiency or something which at its most extreme uh uh and can cause like you know salt wasting and hypotension and you know all these bad things but if it's a slight mutation you just get more sex steroids being formed that prevalence in the in normal society for females is like one in four hundred thousand Right, and then at the elite level, international athletics, we're talking one in 40,000 or 4,000. I forget again the exact numbers, there's actually some pretty cool uh documentaries on stuff like this. And you see athletes like uh Samanya Samanya, that uh, she's a sprinter uh out of uh I believe it's India. Um, her testosterone levels were like 350 or something like that, and they were like, It's a dude, it's a dude. It's like, Well, no, she just you know that's that's how she was born and they're like yeah well it's an advantage it's like well yeah but her legs are shorter her legs are shorter than their <laughs> that than her counterparts just that's you know and that's an advantage for them
1: so, that's when we talk about the, these differences being like you know we just brush them off and say genetics like that's genetics and that's kind of that's kind of the result of that and and you can go down this like nasty dystopian like there's been like books and short stories written about this stuff i forget some of the names of them where they'll just like. You know, in this weird dystopian world, they'll like, phys- like physically hamstring like the high performers, like to make everything "quote
0: fair" and stuff. Well, that's the thing. So, the, so the I, so the IAAF is now making that uh, particular female chemically castrate herself to level the playing field. And I, I, I my personal opinion is that that's probably not a good idea, uh, because where does that end? You know, again, if someone has longer legs and wants to be a sprinter. Well, that's an advantage do you you know make them run in? yeah yeah do you shorten their femurs they have to run in certain shoes do they have to run a longer track like what's the deal Or are you gonna like instead of having gender divisions you have leg length divisions right
1: and how tight do you leave the physiologic range on the blood tests like where does that end because as soon as they make her chemically castrate down to a certain level the next person can say well like she's still higher than me it's not fair you know right so, right right. yeah it's sports just, genetics. just, it's just look, genetics
0: Yeah. look sports aren't fair Okay, sports aren't fair. Uh, some people have more advantages to practice, to get a, you know good coaches, uh, to be involved in athletics from a very early age. You know, for instance, if you are born a certain part of the year and you're the oldest person on your team, then you are more biologically developed as a child, and then you can get you know more exposure to good coaching and select teams and stuff like that. End up being a higher performer than somebody who's younger. That's just look. That's been shown over and over again. Um, again, this this stuff is is more nuanced. Uh, the, probably the most interesting thing about this is the actual, you know, trying to make an argument for d- gender, different gender divisions within sport. So should there even be a women's division in sport? And I, I think that yes, the answer is yes. However, there also needs to be an open division. And so I think that what that does is that eliminates – you know, any of this discussion about transgendered uh, athletes or people who do not want to identify as a certain you know gender, and that, that's, that's fine, but you cannot compete in a restricted division. And in order to make your way into the restricted division, which we could call the women's division just out of convention, uh, you know, you would have to have some sort of criteria to get in that class. And I, I think we don't have anything better right now than what gender assignment at birth. Uh, unfortunately, but genetic testing isn't perfect. Okay. Uh, biological passport isn't perfect. Uh, so I think that having, um, whatever the gender assignment was at birth probably is easy enough. Everybody has that. Uh, and, and, and that works. So, you know, 1996 at the Atlanta Olympics, we stopped doing, you know, DNA tests on women. Um, and then the IAAF and IOC, the International Olympic Committee, basically said, hey, we don't really know what determines what's a female, and what's a male. So, you know, doing the gender assignment thing at birth eliminates any real problem be- because everybody has a gender assignment at birth. And, it, you know, you, there's no other th- criteria that I can I can think of uh, that that works as neatly as that. And so if you are assigned to be female at birth, you can compete in the restricted class, uh, which is the female class. If you were not assigned a female at birth, or if you've changed your your gender or do not uh, uh, associate yourself with a particular gender, then you compete in the open class. Uh, that way you don't have the issue uh, that happened at the World Weightlifting Championships. Uh, Austin, what's your take on the female who ended up getting a silver medal at the World Weightlifting Championship uh, as a first transgendered athlete competing in, in uh, international weightlifting?
1: Yeah, I think, um, you know, I try not to get too far down into the weeds on these discussions because of how, like, politically and emotionally charged they can they can be. But I think that zooming out and looking at it strictly from the biologic, physiologic perspective, um, I think it's very, very, very well established, but not even close to being debatable or a question that um, exposure to uh, androgenic anabolic substances whether endogenous, meaning your own, endogenously produced testosterone or exogenous, uh, i.e. the use of you know anabolic steroids, um, whether injected or oral or whatever substance you of choice, um, results in uh, permanent advantages resulting from permanent effects on muscle architecture as well as neuromuscular function. Um, and so I think that, uh, you know, if you, if, 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 these organizations, I don't know what the specific rules or criteria are in terms of how long you might know how long you have to be on the, you know, the hormonal therapy before you can go and compete in the other division, but whatever it is, it is not sufficient to, uh, basically undo the permanent physiologic advantages of having been born and, uh, developed under the influence of testosterone. So so I think that makes it particularly tricky from the physiologic standpoint.
0: Yeah, I think the NCAA is like a three-year rule. Like you effectively have to be either on chemical or hormonal therapy or castration therapy if you're doing, you know, male to female uh, uh, before you can compete. I wonder how that works with eligibility, like... Yeah, yeah I'm I don't know.
1: Not sure. It's yeah. just it's just kind of funny that you could like you know you could go on test or some other you know D ball or whatever substance you want to use for like eight weeks and have like permanent changes to your muscle architecture and function, and uh, you know just from that small of an amount of use and and a lot of high level competitors competitors um, are using these substances for much longer periods of time. Um, and get these permanent changes, but you know you can take some estrogen for a couple of years, and and you know we pretend that it's all undone. So I don't know. That's that's it's just.
0: Yeah. Well. So that actually brings me to my my next point, which is like the role of drug testing in sport. Uh, so I think overall, in general, that's just one. It it's not stopping people from using. Okay. Very very obvious, given all the recent pops at the Olympics, the highest level. You know. Uh, and, and that's just for weightlifting. Track and field is even more ridiculous thing. at powerlifting, I think, is even more ridiculous. I mean, effectively, effectively, if an organization is not using a biological passport, just they're just paying lip service to the test at large anyway, uh, in, in my opinion. Um, and, and, and moreover, if you're giving people uh, a, an ability to use, get popped, and then come back again. Yeah, the deterrents are definitely not sufficient And they're not immediate enough. So, for instance, why you know, uh, gosh, I don't want to go too too crazy here, but but you know, one of the people will say one of the reasons why the death penalty doesn't work to prevent you know uh, these certain certain types of crime is because the immediacy of the punishment is not soon enough, right? So it, it it's too far in the future. So, for instance, getting banned from sport or you know having a lifetime ban from sport secondary to drug use is too far away from you know the actual. "Quote unquote crime" uh, to actually prevent people from doing that behavior. So, um, I think that you should have the death penalty in sport. <laughs> <laughs> and, and so, what? I, what no, so, so okay. what I mean by that? What I mean by that is the incentive to not do uh, use anabolic steroids in a drug tested sport. Um, Because sports are all contrived anyway, right? The idea is that you're going to participate in a sport under a set of rules, and the only reason that the sport actually exists is because everyone's agreed to. Yeah, just arbitrary Mm -hmm. stuff. Yeah. Right. So, so let's have another arbitrary rule that if you get test positive for performance enhancing drugs and you are automatically banned from all sports, you cannot play another sport again. It's the death penalty. And the reason why is because when you use anabolic steroids, you're making permanent changes to the architecture of your muscles, of your neurological tissue, all the stuff that lasts for the rest of your life. So having a two-year ban or four-year ban is ridiculous. You're saying, yeah, you can use some drugs. That's cool. Right, yeah, exactly. Uh, I think I
1: I saw somewhere recently that, like, Ilya was talking about coming back, and I'm like, that is just comical to me that that would happen after this, you know.
0: Yeah, so so either the death penalty from all sports. So effectively, you test positive once, you cannot participate in any drug-tested sport again. And, And what would make it more interesting is if even the drug, like the sports that or divisions that don't test for drugs if they said yeah well since you tried to cheat in the drug-tested sport you can't actually participate in our division either so you effectively banned this person from sport
1: or or at the or at the olympic level um you know, potentially having it affect the, the country and its representatives, it's, it's, other, its other representatives, because that would incentivize other countries quite a bit more to make sure that their athletes aren't doing that. Is like, hey, if we have one athlete, like, we're all banned from sports forever. Of course, it's really catastrophic to say that, but you, I would expect that that would have them, you know, be on top of their athletes.
0: Yeah, you need immediate and severe punishment if you're going to use it as a deterrent. Because any anything else is, is obviously insufficient, you know, based on the the current the current climate. So yeah, maybe if you test positive once your entire country is banned for <laughs> three three Olympic cycles, for instance, yeah. or something like that. Yeah. And you yourself are banned from all athletic events forever.
1: Yeah. Huh? Yeah. So and, either and either
0: you, do that or do nothing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Or or do nothing. Right. And and then maybe then in the open division it's just run what you brung. Yeah. And they would get a lot more viewers. That's what I'm saying. So so then the other thing is, yeah, so people say, oh, the public doesn't want people on drugs. They want to, you know, athletes or no, uh, role models. No, we
1: want to see a
0: 300-kilo cleanager, okay? <laughs> I, I certainly do. So so here's what you do. You just have the all-drug Olympics, right? All-drug Olympics uh, uh, compared to the drug-free Olympics, right? And they both air at the same time.
1: Yeah, right. <laughs> and, and
0: see how viewership goes. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's, that's one way to do it. I, I I don't know. It's a, it's a complicated, complicated thing, but I think, um, I feel sorry. I feel sorry for females who are caught in the crosshairs here. So if you have a female who is super on that athletic spectrum, they have broad shoulders, narrow hips, lots of muscle mass or whatever. What's the first thing that anybody says on their (laughs) Instagram when they make a post? Yeah, they're definitely on drugs. Either the needle emoji, yeah, right. or, you know, <laughs> or like, you know, or so how long have you been taking steroids for? Something like that, right? It's discounting their hard work, their work ethic, the, you know, everything that they've done to get to the position that they're at, uh, in right now. And I, I just feel for them. I mean, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's a, it's a problem. Um, so anyway, let's wrap it here. Uh, Austin, do you have any parting shots that you really want to drive home for folks on testosterone?
1: Um, or people who are thinking about testosterone. I think the main the take-home points that we've had for, from today is that it's appropriate to get tested in the setting of uh, you know consistent symptoms um, It's important to actually undergo the complete and thorough evaluation um, to confirm the diagnosis it's also important to be aware of and undertake the relevant lifestyle changes um, to, um, that can that can provide significant clinical benefit if you have issues with things like body fat, sleep issues, alcohol use, certain medications that can affect testosterone levels, things like that. I think it's, it's very, very important to work on those prior to jumping on therapy. And if you are to jump on therapy in the setting of an appropriate diagnosis, and if you don't have any... Uh, other condition that would make treatment inappropriate, um, then I think overall it's a fine thing to do. It's it's generally pretty safe in correctly selected and monitored patients, and uh, it can give those people quite a bit of benefit um, in terms of their symptoms. Um, I think those are kind of the main take-home points from the from the clinical side of things that we talked about today.
0: Yeah, I agree. My uh, my kind of take-home is mainly about the laboratory assessment, uh, and then also that this is not a sort of you know, uh, fountain of youth or cornucopia of like performance gains. Um, I think we kind of sussed that out nicely. And then lastly is the female bit. And, uh, look, if you see a jacked AF female who's super impressive, maybe, maybe don't comment on drug use first. Uh, Uh, unless, unless you see the syringe in the picture, if you see that, well, Hey, Okay, but but you know, other than that, you can uh, keep keep it to yourself. So, uh, in any event, for Barbell Medicine, I'm Dr. Feigenbaum. He's Dr. Baraki. Thanks for tuning in. Subscribe, share, and uh, we'll catch you guys next time.